You know, I, here's what I'll say. When you see, um, when you just see the way God's created us and the beauty of the way in which God has given each of us a craft, passion, and, and when you take time to develop our God-given gifts and then they're put on display that tell the story of the manifold wisdom of God, it is like the church in its best form of like, I mean, Karen's singing that song. Here's the problem. Whoever did the order of service was wrong because you don't put the grand finale in the middle of the service because <laughs> you're left with a little bottle rocket here. I can tell you that. But I'm just super grateful when I, um, when I experienced the church. And so thanks for allowing me to worship in this space. Um, so I don't have a Grammy, but um, <laughs> I got a lot of honor for you. Uh, let me say something about New Life Fellowship. I've been friends with Rich for a long time. Um, and I recently got to know Pete and Jerry a little bit. They did a little marriage workshop a few months ago that some of us pastors from around the country came in and just sat in their, in their, in, in, in their space for a weekend and were loved and cared for by them. Um, there's a few churches in the world that have disproportionate anointing. I know you think you just came to church today. There's a disproportionate anointing on this place. And I'm not like make, making that up. I'm saying that sometimes God moves through certain communities in a disproportionate way for the sake of the world. And that's happened here. And it's happening here. Your faith matters to the world. My, my congregation, a lot of them eavesdrop on you. And that's really beautiful. And it's frustrating because they hold me to the standard of riches preaching, right? Incredible, incredible stuff. And uh, so there's this passage that Paul writes to the church and Thessaloniki, where he says about this, this church and this sort of average town, not that that's what this is, because this is well beyond that, but he says this is what's possible in the faith of the people. He says this in First Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 1. He says, your faith in God has been, become known everywhere. And I think there's something about New Life Fellowship that God has specific anointing around this place for the sake of the world. And so it's a real joy to step into this. I love the fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual formation has been my, um, my desire. I've been in ministry 20 years. I'm 24 years old now. Um, no. <laughs> I've been in ministry 20 years, and I'm actually 65. This wrinkle cream is crushing it. Um, and, and it's what my driving passion has been for the past couple of decades. How do people, how do we grow? How do we change? How do we transform? What does that mean for our brain health? What does that mean for our emotional health? What does that mean for our physical well-being and manifesting God out through our bodies? What does that look like? And so I think about, when I think about the fruit of the Spirit, which is another way of saying the divine life, let's just name that. The fruit of the Spirit are actually the life of the divine coming through you, right? That's pretty, that's a big deal. That's not a small deal. To manifest that, I think about how incredible it is that Paul wants to talk about agriculture. He wants to talk about metaphors that help us understand with the connection of the soil. And what's beautiful about that, by the way, let me ask you this. How many, does anyone here know how long it takes to till a field when it's ready to actually produce good grapes? How many years does that take? Just throw out some guesses. Five, seven, maybe 10, 16 years. It takes 16 years, they say, to produce a kind of soil that is ready to come through the earth, produce the quality grape that the world says, oh, that's good. 
That's kind of what God's been doing at New Life Fellowship for the last few decades, producing a quality of grape for the world to say, oh, that tastes really, that's really good news for the world. And that's what God is saying about your life. In other words, God isn't interested in you being machinery. God isn't interested in fixing you in 2.5 seconds. God is interested in cultivating you over a lifetime, pulling in you, pulling you into his divine orbit where God can slowly but surely farm your life. I think that's really good news, that God's a nurturer. And here's what's crazy. The soil called your life is one of God's fields. And he loves the field that he gets to cultivate in you. I'll come back to this wine in a few minutes, but I want to start with this verse in Romans chapter 5 that I think is a really great access point for us to continue to think about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says this, that the love of God, imagine God's essence. If we could see God's essence of the triune Father, Son, Spirit, what's flowing out of that, what's streaming out of that into all of the cosmos is love. And it doesn't just sort of stream above us or around us. It actually, according to Paul in Romans 5, that God's love has been poured out, this is 5 verse 5, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So imagine the streaming love of God flowing from God's being into your very soul. I think about the fruit of the Spirit like this. It's like a prism, right? Right. Sorry, thinking about Pink Floyd. It's like a prism of, of this divine light flowing out, represented on the sort of left side with the, the white light. And what the fruit of the Spirit is saying is that when the love of God streams from God's person into your heart and you put yourself in a frame every day of saying, I want your love in me at its fullest capacity, it then refracts in all of these colors. And it looks like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In other words, the love of God streaming in and through your life. We've made, we've made love so abstract, haven't we? Like I love my daughter and I love tacos, right? Like love means sort of everything. And so it sort of means nothing sometimes. But love in this way, what I want to talk about in the next couple of minutes is when the love of God gets a hold of you and begins to stream out in the form of kindness. When it actually hits the streets through you in the form of kindness. There's this um, great British-American author who seems to be battling with a case of indigestion here who once said that Three things in human life are important. The first is to be kind, and the second is to be kind, and the third is to be kind. The New Testament has a word for this. It's chrysestas. Chrysestas. Kindness. But if I'm being honest, um, kindness is sort of optional for me. It's not important in our cultural moment. It, it almost seems sort of weak in our cultural moment. It's sort of like cantaloupe of all the fruit. Like the the joy is the blueberry. Who doesn't love the blueberry, right? You think about the piece of the watermelon. I mean, summer watermelon is the best. And I think about kindness and I think about like the cantaloupe, right? It's fine if other people like cantaloupe. 
That's not what I want for my life. Right? Does anyone here like cantaloupe, by the way? Oh, you can have mine. You know what I mean? Because you know what it is? It's a garnish. It's a garnish. It's meant to be seen, not tasted. Um, and Sylvia Rosetta wants to challenge my notion on this. And I think she's right. She says this, that genuine kindness is no ordinary act, but a gift of rare beauty. I love the rarity of that. How about Barbara DeAngelis, who says, love and kindness are never wasted. They always make a difference. They bless the one who receives them, and they bless you, the giver. And Bob Carey, the politician, unexpected kindness is the most, I don't know that I believe this, but I want to. It's the most powerful, least costly, and most underrated agent of human change. It, can we take that seriously? Is, that, is it possible to rethink kindness in ways that transcend anything that I have been thinking about when I think about this term in my life? So I've been thinking about um, places in our city where it seems like the least amount of kindness um, is experienced. Uh, how about jury duty? Anyone? <laughs> this place is rough, right? I mean, kindness is not a cultural norm. How about the DMV? Anyone? Next time you're at the DMV, look at the person across working at the counter and bless them. They have a hard job putting up with us. Kindness is not the cultural norm. How about airport security? There should be t-shirts made that say like, hug a TSA agent today, right? It's a hard gig. When I think about, how about the Queen Center Mall on Black Friday? I, was, uh, I, was, I went into H&M yesterday, and I was taking the elevator down to the men's uh, part of that store, and one of the employees got on with me with, um, with a rack of clothes, and you know we hadn't said anything, to, so I turned to him and I said, on the whole, are people kind? And he looks at me and says, on the whole, no. <laughs> right? Kindness is not a cultural norm. How about the recent Democratic president, presidential debate held in Detroit? This was the New Yorker the morning after depicting Joe Biden, right? Of just the, the challenge that he faced on that stage with so many people coming after him. of his own tribe, right? Kindness is not the cultural norm. And the Republicans don't fare any better. John McCain's letter at his funeral that he wanted read said these words, we are 325 million opinionated vociferous individuals. We argue and compete and sometimes even vilify each other but we have always had so much more in common with each other than in disagreement. If only we would remember that. We will get through these challenging times. How about the Facebook section for comments? Lord have mercy. Kindness is not the cultural norm. You know, some would say that um, the place that they've experienced the least amount of kindness that they vowed never to return to was the local church. I remember when Anne Rice, the author, came to faith and reported not any more than a couple years after joining the church. She said, I quit being a Christian. I remain committed to Christ. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome hostile, disputatious group. To which I think, wait, Ann, you've never been to New Life Fellowship. 
You've got to come see what God's doing here. And I thought, you know, that's probably true for a lot of people who just had bad experiences, just experienced the church in a way that wasn't helpful as a different script to what was being offered in the world. You know, where I would part with Anne on this is that I would challenge her to say the answer isn't to leave the church as it is. The answer is to be the church as Jesus intends us to be. Kindness is hard. And maybe you're here thinking, look, AJ, I, I don't, you don't know my boss. So thanks. I appreciate that. I can appreciate the cute fruit concepts at church, but it's probably best to leave them here in the sanctuary because kindness gets crushed where I'm from. Kindness is really hard. And it comes up over and over and over, dozens and dozens of times in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek New Testament. Chrysestas. We keep seeing kindness over and over and over. And I want to remind you that much of the Bible was written by people that experienced oppression, marginalization, and exploitation. In other words, the scripture, most of the scriptures we have are written by people who felt like they were at the bottom. It wasn't written by the victors typically. Well, not in that way. It was written by those in the bottom saying, I feel like I'm hard pressed on all sides. And yet our call is to be kind. And so I've been challenging myself with the question, what if kindness is a supernatural manifestation of God's love within a culture of outrage? And what if there is no other community better poised and equipped to present a new way to be human and the way to be kind than the local church? It's a super big challenge for me. And what I'm, what I'm, what I'm realizing, and some of the good news for us today is, is that it's not about doing more and trying harder and, and trying to perform it. It's about sitting in a posture, in a place with love always streaming at you from God, saying, God, come and get me wrapped up into what you're doing so I can flow. That's it. We don't want to leave here today beat down thinking, if I could just do more. No, 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 no. It's about summoning yourself to someone saying, could you just be with me? And let me refract my love through your life in all these different shades and colors. It's going to be good news for the world. Yeah. Turn with me, if you will. I'm going to put this through a quick narrative. 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you brought your scriptures. It's in the Hebrew Bible. 2 chapter, chapter 9, 3 through 7. Just a couple passages here. I want to teach through this in a narrative form. It's often easier to see this not like based on concepts and principles and just like bullet points, but to see how this plays out in a life. Uh, and as you're turning there, let me set up some context here. So Saul is the king of of Israel. The first king of Israel, Saul's complicated. A leadership study on Saul is loaded. He starts out humble. He ends up arrogant. Now, I want you to notice something about Saul. If you've never studied him before, as he ages, he doesn't grow the fruit of God's spirit. He grows the weeds of his own ego. If you notice this in Galatians 5, before you get to the fruit of the spirit, you're confronted with the weeds of the ego, right? Right, we got to contrast those two together to see that there's, there's a couple scripts out there you can follow. And we, not, we need to choose wisely. I think what it says to me, nearing my 40s, is that as you age, AJ, it does not necessarily mean you're going to become wiser, more loving, kinder, more patient. In fact, when you look at Saul, sometimes when you age, you can resist the spirit. You can sit in church all you want, and you can resist the spirit in a way that you become less loving, 
less kind, less compassionate. And my friends, this cannot be. We're called to get wrapped into the divine life. Now Saul has this son. What's his son's name? Jonathan. Jonathan has a son. What's his son's name? Mephibosheth. We'll just call him Mephi for short, right? <laughs> David's a friend. Saul and Jonathan go off to battle. What happens to them? They are killed in battle. Now, Mephi is five years old when they're killed in battle, and he's crippled. And he is the lineage of Saul, which says Mephi should be king, but he's not because who's anointed king instead? David. Now, we read this and think, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of cool. Have that play out, right? When you become king and you're not in the lineage in ancient time, and you can even see this carried out through Rome, when you become king and you're not in the lineage, you don't run for election. You kill your opposition. That's what the surrounding cultures did. They severed heads. And the one who stands victorious at the end, well, he's king. That's how culture works. That's how the script was played out. You can imagine the tension in the family of Mephi's mom being like, let me carry you over here to this city because if David comes in, I don't want to see you lose your head. So the tension that's building up in this, the ancient reader wouldn't have read this and thought, yeah, that's interesting. David's not king. They would have thought Mephi's a goner. He's a total goner because he's a threat to David. But watch this text. King David asked, is there no one still alive? from the house of Saul, who played by a different script. Saul played by the script of the world, by the way. And he's looking at Saul's household. And he's saying, who can I show God's kindness to? Ziba answered the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Emiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to him. In honor. What's he doing? He's saying, don't kill me. I will submit to you. Let me, let me beat you to it. And maybe you'll change your mind if I bow to you. And David says, Mephibosheth, right? At your service, he replied. David says, don't be afraid. Why does he say don't be afraid? Because he had everything to be afraid of. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that has belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephi bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Okay. Let me fuse this back into kindness. What happens is this, and this is what's important for us, especially if you're like me and you feel like kindness doesn't work in my cultural script. If I'm kind, I'll lose. If I'm kind, I'll get stepped on. If I'm kind, good things don't happen. What David does is he begins to flip the cultural script that he had inherited by the surrounding nations. And he says, I'm going to choose to live by a script of the kingdom and not by the empire. I'm bringing a different way to the world. He rejects a culture of revenge, a rivalry spirit, a culture of aggression, and he begins to create a new cultural script that he seeks to live out of where kindness becomes the model of a cultural norm. If you can believe it, this is how the world 
is changed. Here's some good news. We're not called to be nice. Even Pete said that on his video a few minutes ago. Now hear me right. We're called to be kind. Kindness is not the same as niceness. Niceness is superficial. Kindness is genuine. Niceness tolerates people to their face. Kindness cares about people behind their back. And you may not like all the people who have power in your life. And you don't have to endure injustice after injustice. But we are called to pray for them, to contend for them, and to contend for their shalom. And I want to make a couple ridiculous statements in closing that only make sense in the light of the kingdom. The first is this. Kindness is always proactive if it's genuine. What I mean by that is, what's David doing? He's searching. He's looking for someone to say, I'm not reacting to life. I am going out searching for people that before I even know how Mephi's going to be with me, I'm going to be kind. In other words, he refuses to empower other people to determine his own way of being. Does that make sense to you? You have power at some level. And what often happens is we give our power away when we react to how other people show up in our space. What kindness says is, regardless of how you show up, I am predetermining to, like God, radiating love, I'm going to shed kindness towards you. I'm going to choose that because I'm a powerful person, because the Holy Spirit lives in me, and greater is he who's in me than the script that's in the world. I can live from a sense that I don't need your respect to be kind. I'm not going to live reactionarily. I'm a child of the kingdom. And I have worth from the king. That it's proactive. Second thing is this. Kindness is powerful. Don't always believe that. It feels weak to me. Reminded of this passage of how God gets things done in Romans 2. Because before Christ awakened me, this heart was really stony, rebellious and hard and egotistical. And it says, did you not know, I love this question, I phrase it in the sentence here, but do you not know the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? (laughs) No, Paul, I didn't know that. Because, you see, I think it's the other way around. Wasn't it my repentance that led to God's kindness? Like, what, isn't that the framework we have? If I, just get, if I just feel bad enough for long enough, then God will like me and all things will be made new. But that's not what Paul is saying in Romans here. Paul is saying that there is a stream of kindness that was coming out of the Father, Son, and Spirit that enabled you to repent as a gift of reconciliation with God. In other words, God chose AJ to be kind towards you before you even knew its name. God has always been kind. God's proactive kindness led to transformation in me. And the idea is this. If he can move this heart, if he can move your heart, then he can do that in all the world. Why would God be limited to just you? God's saying, AJ, I want to flow through you to demonstrate what I'm doing in you, I'm also wanting to do in the world. Last thing. 
Kindness is cultivated. I hope every time you see a bottle of wine poured out into a glass, or this is called a decanter, for the rest of your life, you'll think about the fruit of kindness. This is what's called a process called decanting, which its whole aim is to take bold red wines that have a tendency to be a little edgy, a little acerbic, a little bitter. And the air, when you, when you allow that to come off and all of that stuff that's been stuffed in there and, and the air that's been unable to get in, when the air starts to mix and flow with the liquid of the wine, it creates a kind of aroma. It creates a kind of truth to the substance. The, the edginess doesn't get in the way anymore. It kind of it mellows it just a little bit, right? Have you ever had a wine before and you're like, ooh, that's, that's really bitter. That's got a, a, a sort of acerbic edge to it. Well, the decanting process, what it does is it doesn't in any, wise, in any way minimize the truth of the wine. It's not trying to take the truth of the wine or the taste of the wine or the quality of the wine and put it down. What it's trying to do is get airflow in there to where it can bring the flavors out where you're not just tasting the sort of bitter edge of it, but you're tasting the fruit. You're tasting the quality, the sort of essence of the wine. See, I think this is what kindness looks like. I think kindness looks like a life that's decanted, a life that can mellow, a life that doesn't lose its truth. See, it can hold its conviction, It can speak truth to power, but it's lost its bitter edge. You get that? It's not about pulling out the truth of the wine. It's about bringing the flavors into the room, right? That's a hard thing to do. That's a really hard thing to do, especially when you feel wronged. Guess what the Greek word that is the opposite of chrysostes, of kindness, guess what that is? It's called apatumia. Let's say that together. Apatumia. Guess what that word means? Bitter. It means bitter. The opposite of kindness is bitter. Now here's what we have to do. Now I think this is interesting that this process is all about air. Air. Isn't it weird that the word for spirit in the Greek is what? Numa. In the Hebrew is rock, hakadesh, which means breath, wind, air. That when you bring yourself underneath the covering of the spirit and the air gets in you, It holds that truth, but it takes off that bitter edge. My friends, that can change the world. Here's what I recommend as a practice. Say this with me. Stop. Here's what I'm trying to do in this season of my life. It's really hard. First is to slow down. Got to slow down. You cannot become kind fast. And it's hard to get that into your neural pathways, into your muscle memory to where it becomes supernatural and just happens. At least not for me. The the idea of slowing down is, AJ, stop being so reactive. Stop and just pay attention. Get altitude. 
Get altitude, man. Step away from the situation. Don't fire off that email. Don't, reach, don't, don't tweet that. Don't post that. Don't text that. Breathe. Sometimes my wife will say, AJ, put the phone down. Put the phone down. You got to breathe. You got to decant. And I'm like, I can't. It's like, decant, right? <laughs> Notice your trigger. What's your trigger? Why is this bothering me? What's, really, what's that really about? How can I really check into what's really happening? The thing under the thing under the thing. That's why that bothered me. It actually wasn't this person. It reminded me of this event in my childhood. And I need to be healed of that. Because I don't want to go the next 30 years and that thing keep tripping me up. And I don't want to empower this person to have power over me just because I'm living reactionary. What is my trigger? How can I name that? I think that's one of the things that's interesting about humans is that aside from all the other animals, humans are able to get altitude and see ourselves outside of ourselves. I don't think any other animal has the ability to do that except humans. At least that's what I've heard. That's a gift, but we don't use it. At least I don't. The third thing is this. Open up. And I mean open up to that person across the table. Because the wound you just received from them came from a wound in them. They got a story. They got a background. They got a history. They got trauma as well. How can I open up long enough to say, hey, where's that coming from? How can I know you more? How can instead of shutting you down and thinking I got you under my control, how can I say, what, what, what's happening with you? Let me check in with your story and not just get offended that you're poking around in mine. And the last is this. It's presence. It's presence. It's, it's, it's being able to slow down, notice my trigger, open up to the person, and then, and then just say, God, decant me. I need you. I need to abide in you. Because from, I can't bear any fruit, Jesus says, if I'm not in you. And I feel like my flesh just wants to reply, and I know that your spirit's calling me to a different script. So may I receive your presence. May I be filled with you that I might flow out of you. So my friends, may we summon ourselves to the presence of God and refuse to live a reactionary life. Choose to model a culture of kindness. Because kindness is proactive. Kindness is cultivated. And kindness can change the world. Thanks be to God.
serving communion to come to my right, um, your left. I love the way Pastor AJ connected love and kindness, um, because I think for us, we're Christians, it's easy to think of love when it comes to other people, because we're Christians, right? And we're called to love people. So I think it can come easy, I know for myself, to say, I love everybody, I love people. But the challenge is, what does love look like in an everyday sense? And what he's telling us is that looks like kindness. It's very specific. It's not this this sweeping kind of up there idea of loving everyone. And when I think of what it looks like, I think when I think about love, I think about roses. You know, beautiful, they can be extravagant, gorgeous colors. But then when I think about kindness, I think about carnations. Carnations are everywhere. They're on every street corner. They're accessible. And I'm not sure I pay that much attention to them on a daily basis. But what does it look like for us to put feet to love and not just have this romantic notion about it? What is it going to look like for you to express love Tomorrow when you go to work and it's the same people that you've been working with 
for a year or five years, the same coworker that has the same attitude, that has the same behavior towards you, what is it going to look like for you to show love through kindness to that person? And if you're a student and you're going back to school this week, particularly a college student, you may have to go to financial aid this week. What that, what's that going to look like when you go to the financial aid office to talk about the aid that hasn't shown up on your report yet? What is it going to look like when you go back to your neighborhood today and the, the neighbor that has always gotten on your nerves for some reason, you two don't get along, you don't see eye to eye on how your property is supposed to be treated. What does it look like for you to show love through kindness? Again, we're not talking about niceness. We're not talking about some phony way to pretend that we like people when really we don't. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about transformation. And now Pastor AJ just shared with me, he really feels there's some people in this service in particular that need to come up and have hands laid on you for this anointing. This has not happened the other two services. It's this service. So there's some of you right now, you're hearing this message and you're feeling like, I need a touch from God. I specifically need a touch from God. If that is you, you go up to the prayer line. Again, this is not something that we've said at every other service. There are people in this service. I'm talking to you right now. You hear me, and the Holy Spirit wants you to know that he's made a way for you to seek this today, and that's at the prayer line. And for the rest of us, Look, I'm going to challenge myself and I'm going to challenge us this week. What I'm asking you to do is to take notes on yourself this week. So as you go through this week and, you know, you start to get that something happens and you just start to get that anger. You feel like, oh, my gosh, this person, if they say this to me one more time, you know that feeling. Some of you are looking at me, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It rises up, right? Take notes, but this time what you're going to do is you're going to ask yourself two questions. The first question is you're going to say, what am I telling myself about that person right now? What's the story I'm telling myself about them? Right now, what's the story? Don't judge it, just take a note on it. And then the second thing you're going to take notes on, what is my behavior telling me about me? Now, this is classic emotionally healthy discipleship. This is nothing new, but I'm asking us not to think about it, but actually this week to commit to it and to do it. Take notes on yourself. If you're a small group leader, ask the members of your group, say, let's do this together. Let's do this together and let's regroup and see what this experience was like for us. It's not judgment. It's not condemnation. It's helping each other and helping ourselves to be formed by the spirit of Jesus Christ so that he can heal us and he can help us to grow. And I want to hear from you. When you come back next week, like, tell me what happened. What was the experience like this week? What did you learn? What did this message of love through kindness, what did it do? And what did God do in you this week? Okay, so please come up for prayer again. Those of you that heard me say that this was specifically for you, come up to the prayer line and ask for prayer. And for others, if you want to uh, have, um, have some time with Jesus through communion, please come and avail yourselves of that as well. All right, so I'm going to pray for us um, and then dismiss us. Please 
Hold your hands out and I'm going to pray a blessing on us. So brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, I pray that the spirit of Christ through his generous, warm countenance would pour out on you right now that you would see his face of love as he smiles down on you, that you would receive the love and kindness that he has towards you, not towards someone else, but towards you, that you would allow it to penetrate your being and that it would radiate out to those around you. So I bless you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.